God is building an ethnically diverse, intergenerational family of Christ followers in Worcester. We are committed to loving God, loving one another, and loving our city in Jesus' name. We do not compromise on truth and won't settle for anything that falls short of love. We believe in God's holy scripture. And we are convinced that the gospel is not only to be preached, but also lived out through lives of love and service. We love Worcester, our city, our home. And we seek to be agents of God's shalom peace, no matter what. Through worship, we are rooted in Christ. Through community, we are strengthened in faith. Through generosity, we are overflowing with thankfulness. We are saturated in grace, always growing, always learning. Life in Christ is a never-ending journey. This is my journey. This is my journey. This is my journey. This is my journey. And this is my journey. 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 I love that video. It was the first in our anniversary series. You can see all of them on our website and hope you'll do that. What a great reminder. This is my journey. It's our journey. It's our church all together. And uh, that's what we're going to be focusing on in these next weeks. You know, it would be very easy right now, and I'm guessing it's happened to some degree. I know it's probably happened in churches all across our city and our world. It would just be very easy just to disconnect, right? Um, we have worked very hard. We have very talented people that have worked hard to make sure we have the technologies and the capacity to host and to do church the way that we do. But we're, there are better productions out there. There are, right now, we're competing with the world's best preachers. You could go anywhere in the world on the internet and tune in and just find a, a meaningful service, great music and great preaching, why stick with us? Why stick with a church, uh, a connected group of people who are committed to one another when frankly, this is how we're connecting. How is that different than tuning into some church in Atlanta or in California? Well, church matters more than what we do in these services. And so we're going to be focusing on that for the next three months. We're going to spend 13 weeks looking at this thing called the Church of Jesus Christ. And we're calling the series, We Are the Church. Because the church isn't a Sunday broadcast. The church, as I said in my, uh, my update video just a couple of weeks ago, the church is not the brick and mortars. The church is you and me. And that really matters. And so we're going to look at the priority, the essence of the church, and the exhortations that Scripture has for how we are to be the church together. I remember years ago um, when our kids were younger, I was doing the typical parent thing as our kids were involved in town sports. And one year I ended up coaching my son's uh, peewee soccer team. And it was hard to find practice fields. And so we had a big field out in front of our church building, which had been built somewhere in the 1970s or so. 
And uh, we had a big field out there, and so we were practicing, and one of the dads that came to help me, who was not a church goer by any means, um, was asking me as we were practicing about the church. And um, he asked me how old the church was, and I, I mentioned that the church was 130 years old. And I remember him turning around and looking at this building that at the time was, was what, 40, uh, 40 years old, 45 or so. And uh, his comment was, wow, it, it looks great <laughs> for the size. Because like so many, he equated this building, and it was a beautiful building, uh, as being a church. And who could blame him? The truth is we put a sign out on the street that called it a church. That's a phenomenal thing that I remember. Uh, I also remember around... uh, A decade later, I was asked to meet with a group of people who had uh, been disenfranchised and heartbroken over things that had happened in their church. It was a mainline church, and uh, it had drifted from historic Christian theology on some really important issues. And these group, uh, this group of people who were still historically biblical Christians had fought a very hard battle to try to keep the church in line with Scripture and with Jesus' vision for it, but they had lost. And so they found themselves without a home, and they had drifted and were dispersing, and some had given up on church altogether. And I was asked to meet with them. And I remember thinking, what can I give these people whose sense of community, of Security. Their even their sense of what the church is has just been broken, and they've been wounded by the church. And as I was praying about what I could say, this came to mind. It was a phrase that's found in Ephesians chapter five. And so, if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me, and we're going to begin by just reading three verses that we most often come to when we're discussing marriage and relationships. But because of that, we miss out on one of the most precious statements about church in all of Scripture. So I'm going to begin reading at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to her himself as a radiant church. Let me say that again, it's so precious. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The phrase that I think God gave me to give those folk, which I wanna give you today, were those four words. Christ loves the church. Not brick and mortar buildings. He loves this spiritual entity that he calls his bride. He died, he sacrificed for the bride, the church. One of the tragedies of the westernization and the Americanization of Christianity is that we have drifted into this idea that faith and spiritual connection and our life in God and, and in Jesus is more of an individual thing. Conversion is an individual thing. 
our personal relationship with Jesus, we use phrases, and they're, they're true to some degree, uh, that if you were the only person on earth and you needed it, Jesus would have died for you. Well, that's true. But it's not really a biblical idea. It's more of a notion that we have because it is very clear that Jesus did not just die for you and for me. He had an amazing thing in mind that you and I are a part of, and that is where we experience all of what Jesus came to do, is in this thing called his bride, the church. Jesus always had a bigger mission and plan than just individual people. And when we get that, then we understand how our life and our faith is meant to be connected not just with him, but with each other. The truth is, Christianity, your spiritual faith, can never just be an individual thing. It isn't, it can't be, and it was never meant to be. You cannot live fully your life in Christ, and therefore, you can't live the life you were created to live if you don't understand your place in this thing called the church. And so that's what we're gonna look at. And so for some of you, especially today, I'm gonna lay some of the groundwork over the next three weeks as we look at Christ's statements about the church, the birth of the church, the early characteristics of the church. If you've been a Christian a long time, and in particular, if you've been a part of the journey, you've heard us teach on these things. Don't turn us off any more than when you hear us preach the gospel because these are central truths and it's important that all of us get on the same page. And for some of you, this may be the very first time you've heard even the notion of what I'm sharing with you. And so let's take this journey together. We are gonna look at the very first place where the phrase or the term church is mentioned in the New Testament. The Greek word is ekklesia and it means called out people of God. And it's in Matthew chapter 16. And so, again, find a Bible, digital or, or tangible, and turn to Matthew 16. I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you now are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone yet that he was the Messiah. 
That last phrase is something we'll come back to some other time when we talk about the life of Jesus and the uh, unfolding of his mission on earth. But this is the watershed moment in the Gospel of Matthew. I would argue it speaks for the, the key moment in all of the Gospels in terms of the life of Jesus. Everything that's happened up to this point has led to this conversation. The disciples have been walking with Jesus, watching Jesus, listening to Jesus. And throughout it, they are committed to understanding who he is. They, they believe he's the Messiah, but they're trying to figure it out. There are, there are times when they actually say, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then there's this moment, and you know this is important, the way Jesus sets it up. He begins by saying, who do people say that I am? You're out there. There's a lot of ideas. And of course, we read what their response was. And then he turns to them, and this is a very poignant moment. He says, what about you? You who've been with me. You who I've invested my life in. You who have gotten the close-up image, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for all of them, makes the very first profession of faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. He said, you are the Christ. That's the word for Messiah or Savior, the Son of the living God. That's Lord, divine, Jesus in his divinity. And it is that statement that gets this response from Jesus Blessed are you, Simon, because this wasn't revealed just by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, through the work of God in his heart and in his life. And then Jesus makes this amazing pronouncement, which is at the heart of the gospel and therefore at the heart of his mission on earth, when he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a a theologically rich and profound statement that we have looked at in depth at many times. But what I want to do is to just quickly lay out six things that we learn about this thing that Jesus called his church, his church. Ecclesia, what we learn from Matthew 16 about the church. Now, for those 10 or 12 of you that were part of our growth group last year called uh, God's New Community, this ought to be review for you. And uh, with your permission, I guess even without it, I'm going to share it with the whole congregation. The first thing that we see about this church is that it would be a unique gathering of individuals who uniquely belong to Jesus. That's what the word ecclesia means. And, and he, he makes it possessive. I'm going to build my church, my called out people. So whatever Jesus had in mind in terms of why he would come and who he was, at the heart of it was a distinct and precious group of people that we've come to see as his bride Uh, as we saw in Ephesians 5, as Jesus refers to it as later on in his teaching as well. So the first thing we understand is that this church, which was at the heart of Jesus' mission, was a unique 
gathering of individuals who would distinctly and uniquely belong to Jesus. The second thing is that it was clearly part of Jesus' plan and mission on earth. I've already stated that, but let's get it down here as one of the critical things for us to understand. Jesus' plan was not just seeking and saving the lost, one lost sheep at a time. We take that statement of the the good shepherd who leaves the 90 and 9 behind to go after the one. That's true, but it's to bring him back into the fold. He is still the shepherd of the whole flock. And that's a critical thing for us to understand, and that was always part of Jesus' plan. The third thing, it was built on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as some of you have heard me teach on this passage before, this is where some of the confusion of, in particular, the Roman church uh, is seen by believing that Jesus is specifically saying to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. And that's a misunderstanding of this passage. When Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church, that's actually a different uh, Greek word than what he refers to Peter. We'll come back to Peter in a few minutes, but when Jesus gives Simon a new name, it's Petros, it's the, it's the male gender form of that word, and in the Greek that means stones that fit in your hand. Uh, we did a lot of house shopping, and right now some of my kids are looking for houses in our city, and when you look at the foundation, you know those that were built before World War II because they're built out of field stones. That's a, a Petros. You, can't, you, you can use a lot of them to build something, but it itself is not large enough to be the foundation. But then when Jesus talks about the church, he says, on this Petros, the feminine form, and that means bedrock, That means when you dig down below whatever topsoil there is until you hit the rock that is at the very foundation of where you are, that's what you build on. That's what they built on in the ancient times. They didn't pour footings like we pour today. They didn't drive steel down into the bedrock. They went down to the bedrock and then built from there. And so what Jesus is doing is he's giving Simon a nickname that we're going to play off of later, that Peter himself will play off of when he talks about the church because Simon makes the declaration that is the bedrock on which the church will be built. And that is the statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the church is intrinsically built on the foundation of who Jesus is. If you don't have that right, you can put church out your building. You can uh, you know, claim church on your 501c3 application to the IRS. If you don't get Jesus as a person and his mission on earth correct, or if you had it once and you've drifted away from it over the decades, you can't call yourself part of Jesus' ecclesia because it's built on him and getting that right is the foundation. Then we see that fourth, the church involved a profession of belief in Jesus as Savior, that's what the word Christ means, or Messiah, and as Lord, 
That's what we mean by son of God. You are the Christ. In essence, Peter becomes the very first of many millions of people who have become part of the bride of Christ through that very same profession. By professing their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. And so here's what I want to say to you. Whether you're just viewing in online or whether you attend churches physically, you are not part of this bride of Christ without that profession. And we would love to help you understand what it would mean to make that profession in the same way Simon did and to become part of this building that's being built, which is the church, the true church, spiritual building of Jesus Christ, which we're going to land on in just a few moments. Fifth, this church would have spiritual authority and power. I'm going to give you, the first thing he says is that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Notice the image here. It's not a church that is closed up in its fortress and hell is attacking it and we stand strong no matter what. But there's a lot of churches that have that sort of fortress mentality. We're standing and holding for the truth. We're holding each other together. We're surviving. We're a rapture preparation center as I saw a church named in Newark, New Jersey years ago. We're just hunkered down and waiting. No, Jesus expects the church to be on the move. The church has power to invade the territories of darkness. It's the gates of hell. It's the lost state. It's the, it's the, the, the places where Satan rules that the church has authority and has power to step in. And when the church exercises its role the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. My, uh, my barber is a, uh, a young woman who was adopted from Haiti years ago. And last week when we were uh, together and I was getting my hair cut, fully masked, just so you know, um, we were talking about the time we visited the, a sacred place for the voodoo religion in Haiti. It was on a mountain and it was uh, these caves that were just filthy with sacrifices and rituals. It show, just showed the darkness of that particular religion. And one of the things I shared with her was, uh, after we'd been there about an hour, and by the way, we had the privilege through a Haitian pastor of leading uh, a man to Jesus who had come there to ask Satan for help through voodoo, right there in that place. And finally, the priest who was in charge of those caves asked us to leave. And uh, the Haitian minister said, why? And the priest wouldn't answer, and he said, because nothing works when we're here, does it? <laughs> That's true. The gates of hell will not prevail against this church. We are meant to be a people on the move, extending the reign, the blessing, the kingdom of God, the good news, drawing more and more people into this glorious thing called the church. And then we would also see, finally, that it would be a way to gain entry into the kingdom of God. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Let me be very clear. Jesus had in mind from the very beginning that the church would be those who have entered into new life, come under the reign and authority of God through Jesus Christ. And what that means is that the church is the path to union and relationship with God. To enter into the kingdom, life with God is through the church. Jesus never intended that it would be any other way. 
And so we see these six amazing truths just in this introductory statement. And you may say to me now, well, Tom, I'm still confused about Peter. This whole Peter, I will build my church. I mean, could, could certain parts of Christianity have gotten it wrong for so long? Yeah. I think they got it wrong. And I think it confuses our understanding of what the church is. And I, I am absolutely certain that Peter knew the difference between what Jesus said to him when he said, I'm, I'm calling you Rocky, Petros, and what he meant by Petros. Because Peter, in his own epistle in the New Testament, uses that very illustration of himself when he talks about the church. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. This is an amazing thing. And the fact that it's Peter that says it ought to tell you that he understood what Jesus was saying. When Peter says, as you come to him, who is the living stone, the foundation, the cornerstone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like me, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's the true bricks and mortar of the church. It's not physical, it's spiritual. You and I are all of us like Simon Petros. We are all now stones living, breathing, spiritual stones. And Jesus is using us as his building material to build this glorious thing called his church that transcends any localized manifestation of it, any 501c3 constitutional organization that calls itself by that name. This is a glorious and beautiful thing. Peter knew that from the beginning, and he makes clear that the church is built on Jesus, the true Petra, the cornerstone, or the bedrock, to mix metaphors, both meaning the same idea in Scripture. It's a beautiful thing. And so let me just quickly, as we wrap up this introduction and set our course on this amazing study that we're going to do in the months ahead, I want to show you quickly a series of graphics that I used way back in our Holy Habits series when we were talking about the importance of community to talk about, to present a way that you need to, if you aren't yet, you need to be thinking about the role of the church in your life. The first is a, a picture of how most of us might frame our life. You know, I, I'm sitting in my life and I have all these different arenas uh, that I enter into. And some of them are interacted with each other, some aren't. I have family, I have friends, I have hobbies, I have my job or my career. Um, I, I think about the future as something I spend a lot of time working on and planning. And then for many of us, there's religion, or maybe lack of religion, but we certainly have our viewpoint about religious matters and faith. And then what happens most often is uh, when we come to Jesus, Jesus fills that 
area, right? We invite Jesus into our life. He becomes the, the most important thing, which means putting ourselves to the side, Jesus at the center. And then church becomes another arena of our life, right? We go to work, we have family. Sometimes it, it interflows. It certainly does for me. My job is the church. We go to church, right? It's just one of those arenas in our life that whatever we believed or didn't believe before religiously, church replaces. This is not the perspective that we're supposed to have related to the church. This is how Jesus envisions our relationship with him and the church. You see, when you enter into life with Jesus, you become a living stone. You are birthed into this body and Jesus never meant for you to have a life with him apart from it or outside of it. You are part of his called out people. He died not just for you, but he died for the church. He sacrificed himself. And so here is the point that I want you to understand and let it be the, the foundational idea that drives us forward now as we look at this beautiful thing that you're a part of, if you follow Jesus, called the church. And then we explore how, even in the era of COVID-19, we can be that church here together at the journey. And so here's the big idea. Everything you are as a Christian flows out of your relationship with Jesus and his people his church. This is what Jesus intended, and you cannot, you will not, it's impossible to experience the life that he has for you as an individual if you don't understand your role in that church. You know, I could say some things that, that matter. You know, the fact is, we need each other. You need us, we need you. All of us need Jesus. And all of that mingles together into this beautiful thing called the bride of Christ. Think about this, Christ loves the church. <laughs> and we need to also. We're gonna go into communion now. If you have not gotten anything by now, maybe you could take a moment and just run into uh, the kitchen or wherever you have some bread and some juice or anything else right now that can represent somehow this moment. I'm gonna just take a moment and drift over to the table where our elements are today. And I think it's important. What a, what a, it's always timely when we do the Lord's table. But how amazing that we are coming to what we call, think about this, communion on a Sunday when we're talking about the church of Jesus and our communion not just with him but with one another. It's also important to recognize that this gift that Jesus gave us that reminds us of his death wasn't given to you as an individual or to me as an individual. It was given to his bride it's ours to share together. And so once again, as we take the bread as we're going to in just a very short moment, 
and we take the cup, the bread reminding us as Jesus intended of his body that was beaten and opened for us and the blood that the wine represents which was shed for us that bought our forgiveness, that paid our penalty for sin and made it possible for us to come into this relationship with God. That this thing that Jesus did that is represented in these two elements was for us together. His bride, the church. And so together, let's partake wherever you find yourself. And I know we have people viewing actually from not just all over our area, but all over the states and in different parts of the world. So wherever you are, together, let's remember Jesus gave this to us. And the communion that we have is not just with him, but with one another because of it. Scripture says on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He blessed it and he said this represents my body which is broken for you as you eat it. Remember me. And in the same manner, he took the cup of blessing and he said, this represents my blood. The cup of the New Testament, the new covenant made with my blood brings forgiveness of sin. So as you drink it, remember me. Father, we thank you that you made this sacrifice. It's an interesting moment because we so, we, we confess, we so personalize our walk with you. My Jesus, my walk, my faith, my devotions. We're gonna learn to start speaking inclusively. We're gonna talk about us and our. Let us do these things together. We're gonna celebrate that unity that we have even while we are not gathering for worship. We are still your bride. And we thank you that you loved your church and loved us in it. And that your death made it possible for us to not just walk in new life with you, but walk in this new and wonderful community, your bride. Thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.